Happy Pentecost Sunday. If you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Uh, We should get back to uh, Paul and Abraham in a few minutes, but it's Pentecost Sunday, so I thought it'd be worth at least mentioning it and discussing it a little bit with you. So, Leviticus 23 talks about some of uh, the Jewish feast days. In verse 3, it talks about the Sabbath. Verse 4, it talks about the Passover. Now, the Passover, as we've already discussed, um, we Christians, we celebrate the Passover, but we celebrate a transformed Passover. Right? A Passover with new meanings, new significations. Right? Um, you know, the, the Jews celebrate being brought out of slavery. We also celebrate being brought out of slavery. Right? Um, and the Lord brought them out of slavery, and the Lord, we know, brought us out of slavery too. Same celebration, new meaning, and of course, uh, in, in English at least, we give it a, a new name. The rest of the world doesn't, because they're smarter. Verse 9, though. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched, or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now the Feast of Weeks. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And then you shall present a new grain offering of uh, excuse me, a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring him from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, and their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord and the two lambs. And they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. 
it is this last one, the Feast of Weeks, uh, that is Pentecost. So Pentecost is a Greek word for 50th. And if you look here, this feast happens 50 days all right, after the previous feast. Now, I, and I'm still a little fuzzy on this. How... So Passover is related to the harvest, as is the Feast of First Fruits. All right, and so I'm a little fuzzy on exactly who, if everyone equated uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the with the Feast of First Fruits, exactly when that happened. But the Jews celebrated the Feast of Weeks 50 days, Pentecost. All right, they celebrated Pentecost 50th day after the Passover, and so it's been 50 days. All right, since the Passover. Right. That's where Pentecost comes from. Now, for Christians, this is yet another celebration that we look at and we go, okay, that was based on a feast day, just like Passover is based on a feast day. Uh, but once again, it has new significance, right? And that is, that is when the giving of the Holy Spirit happened in Acts. All right, they were the disciples were gathered together. Why were there so many Jews of different nationalities in Jerusalem at the time? Well, they were celebrating Pentecost. They were celebrating the Feast of Weeks. And so, therefore, when God gave the Holy Spirit to the disciples and allowed them to speak in foreign languages, they were able to reach a larger number of people. And so, the church, parts of the church at least, uh, do celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Right? Uh, Baptists, we, we don't tend to celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Uh, but it's certainly worth, I think, noticing. And... Um, I believe Mike's going to find some good Holy Spirit hymns for us to sing today. So, happy Pentecost Sunday. All right, now, turn to Habakkuk, please. Habakkuk. Habakkuk, yes. Just in case you don't remember the context of the book of Habakkuk, uh, we will we will see it very quickly. Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And this is uh, actually given as a dialogue between the prophet and God. Habakkuk complains. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The context here is the wickedness of Israel. Habakkuk is complaining to God. Israel is wicked. There's way too much injustice here. Because that is the case, justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk complains to God. God answers. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Who's that? This is Babylon. 
I'm raising up Babylon, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Right? Fortress has walls, they just pile up earth so they can climb over the walls. Say that, right? Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Okay? God answers Habakkuk, okay, I will deal with the sin of Israel. Uh, You don't know it, but I've been raising up Babylon. I've been raising up the Chaldeans. And they are wicked and fierce. So Habakkuk complains again. Because Habakkuk knows they are, in fact, wicked and fierce. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Note, that's a a statement of faith right there, right? O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Now he's going to talk about the Babylonians. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? As, as the rest of this makes clear, right? you should not think of Israel as righteous, but Habakkuk's making a point of, we're bad, they're worse. Why are you okay? This is his complaint. Why are you okay with something worse than us swallowing us up? All right? You make mankind like the fish of the sea. So now he's, he's going to do an image here. And this image doesn't work for Israel. This has to be Babylon. It makes sense in context. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of the... Who's the he here? This is Babylon. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So that's Habakkuk's second complaint. And then he says, I will stand, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. That's, that's interesting because that's exactly also what you would do if you expect an, an approaching army. You'd stand a tower to see them coming. All right. So I will wait and see hear, see, hear what God says to my complaint. And the answer could be a, a, a speech, as appears to happen. Or it could be, well, here comes the army. I guess God did not listen to my complaint. So either one actually works. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, 
Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God has not changed his mind. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Which Paul quotes in Galatians chapter 3. Moreover, and other places. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death. He, is never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. All right? God has heard Habakkuk's complaint and says, No, this is in fact happening. The righteous will live by faith. All right. Um, when you're standing and watching, and you're seeing the Chaldeans come and do, do basically destroy the nation and take it over, the righteous will live by faith. And then he goes, and uh, he's essentially then goes to talk about a woe against the Chaldeans, because the Chaldeans themselves will be judged after this, and that is the pattern. God sends nations against Israel; uh, they sin as a part of their judgment, and He judges them. And that, let's go, and go to the end of the book, if you would. So, chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, that's a very bad place to be in if you're an agricultural society. Right? You just basically said, you, you, you have no sources of food. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Okay. Ending with a note to those who would, who would sing it. So, Habakkuk, all right, uh, for Paul, uh, gives, gives a model. All right, gives us another Old Testament place to look to, besides Abraham, to understand what faith is and what faithfulness is. All right? No matter what's going on, regardless of what you see all right, around you in the visible world, faithfulness is trusting in God to the end. All right? That's what faithfulness is. Um, faithfulness is, despite the fact that well, your fruit trees, your olive trees, they don't work. Your crops don't grow. Your stalls for your animals are empty because you don't have any. All right? Rejoicing in the Lord and taking joy in the God of my salvation because God ultimately will preserve his people. That was Habakkuk's faith. All right? That was Habakkuk's faith. God will preserve his people. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. From chapter 1, verse 12. So it's a statement of faith. Now, if you would, turn to Galatians. So to recap what we've what we've seen in the book, uh, the, we know the Galatians are having an issue in that Paul evangelized them. All right, 
Paul evangelized them and they received the Spirit. And then later someone came and started teaching them false things. Saying, essentially, if you want to be a real, real God follower, you need to be circumcised and obey the law. Just believing is not enough. All right. I know you've received the Spirit, but if you want to complete your faith, you need to ultimately now submit yourselves to the yoke of the law and live under that. And Paul is coming to say, no, actually, that is heresy. That is falsehood. And so you've got some statements about that. You've got a discussion of Paul's history all right, and how he received his gospel. You've got a discussion, which we went through a couple weeks ago, about Paul's conflict with Peter there in chapter 2, verse 11. In 15, you've got this, um, uh, uh, this situation. Is, is Paul at this point talking to the Galatians, or is he preaching to Peter? Transition from the previous incident, maybe both. All right, because he's now going to transition. We discussed this before. Uh, transition directly from that, because what Peter had done was he accepted the Gentiles based on their faith alone. All right, we read that in Acts. All right, he accepted the Gentiles based on their faith alone, and then when some Jewish Christians showed up, he felt pressure and went back on that and separated himself like a good Jew, and. Paul said, what you're doing is you're destroying what we've been building up. And then he says, if I were to do that, I would be destroying the foundation that God is trying to lay among these Gentiles. And so we talked about that. And in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? All right, Talking about these, these false teachers who have come in. Verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. All right? Think back to Habakkuk, where this is a quote from. All right? What was Habakkuk's... What was his hope? Was it law obedience? No, it was, it was just God made promises to this nation, all right? And God is great, and despite the fact that we're about to be essentially wiped out by the Chaldeans, um, God is faithful and will restore us, all right? So not law obedience in Habakkuk, all right? The problem is there was, well, he was surrounded by people who weren't obeying the law. It was his faith, Habakkuk's faith, all right? And God says to Habakkuk, those, all right, who live by faith, all right, those are those who, be, who will be saved. Not law obedience. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Talking about the law again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quoting from the law. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so these things we discussed before. Now, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. To make clear, all right, well, what, is, what is a, let's t- think in terms of a contract, all right, what is a, what is a contract? 
whether it's a contract between two people or two companies. It is a written agreement, probably usually for both parties, right? That says, you do this and I do this, all right? And this is going to be legally binding. So if, for example, you have two companies that have a legally binding contract and one of them does not fulfill their side, all right, they can go after them legally. Um, what you can't do once you have this covenant, all right, once you have this contract, is you can't just, one party can't just add stuff to it, right? Now, you can change it if you both agree, but one party can't just go, all right, well, this isn't quite advantageous for us enough, so we're just going to add some stuff to it. And that's his point here, all right? You can't do that. You, you, point of, part of the point of writing it down is so it's kind of like solid and unchanging. So to give you a human example, brothers, even with a man-made contract or covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Right? It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but for referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so when he reads that Genesis passage, all right, he's not reading it as in, the blessing will be to all your descendants. What he's saying is, at least not only that way, all right? Though he will totally believe that's true. He's reading it, this is specifically to Christ, all right? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise... Right, the promised Abraham void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right. So this is a logical argument. Okay. Abraham was there. God made a promise to him, and then 430 years later, another covenant was made. All right, the covenant at Mount Sinai, covenant of the law. Does that nullify the previous covenant? No, it does not, actually. It does not nullify that covenant. It came 430 years later. All right? The promise to Abraham is still there all right? and is not dependent on a covenant made 430 years later. So it is separate in some very important way. Verse 19. Why then the law? Because that's naturally going to be the question, right? Well, then why in the world do we have the law if there was this previous covenant? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now that last statement, you know, for every biblical scholar, you'll find two separate interpretations for that. It's a... Uh, it's, it's, it's a not, I don't think, something I want to spend a lot of time on. I don't know the answer. Um, what does that mean? Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. We know God is one. God, uh, God, well, Paul meant something by that. Not sure exactly what that means. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? All right, now, so God made a promise to Abraham, and then the law came later. Okay, why was the law added? Uh, because Israel, all right, was was not righteous. Is that true? I mean, if you read the Exodus account, yeah, they had lots of problems with with unrighteousness. So, the law was added to give them some instruction on how to live. So then, verse twenty-one is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the is the Mosaic law anti-Abraham? 
Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he's saying the law is not anti-promise. All right? um, the law can't bring life. All right? What does he mean by life? Well, when you're talking about Abraham all right, and life... That's the promise, right? How is Abraham, Abraham going to live on? All right? Through having descendants. Now, also eternal life, all right? but also through having descendants. The law? The law doesn't promise that. That's not what the law is really for. All right? that was, that's all based on Abraham's promise, the promise given to him. Now, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Why? Because God's promise was to Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's his argument. All right? The promise was given to Abraham and to his seed. Who is his seed? Christ. So therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. All right? That's how the true lineage, true spiritual lineage, works. If you are in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. And so that's essentially his argument. God made a promise to Abraham and to his seed, who is Jesus. If you are one with Christ, you receive that promise. If you are not one with Christ, you do not receive that promise. Right? You're not a part of that. This is also why... At least one explanation for why there is a whole new level of um, the removing of distinctions within the church. All right, because one of the purposes of the law was to create distinctions between the Jew and those outside. In Christ, when you find that, oh wait, Gentiles are believing and becoming Christian. Oh, okay. Well, that means that these distinctions that were there are. Well, they're going away. And so that's why you've got that statement there in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. All right. Now, is there still male and female? Yes. Is there still Greek, Jew? Genetically, physically, sure. All right. Is there still slave and free? Sure. That means slavery didn't suddenly cease to exist. All right. Jews didn't suddenly not be physical Jews anymore. All right? The point is, uh, everyone gets into, and this is different from the law, right? How do you get into God's favor? You believe in Jesus, Jew and Gentile. And so, in other words, there's no distinction. If you all get in the same way, you're all the same. All right? And so, it's not that males and females are exactly the same. We all know they're not. All right? It's not that Greeks and Jews were exactly the same. Genetically, clearly not. It's not as if being a slave is, is the same as being a free person. No, those are very different, right? Um, in Christ, within the church, 
We all came in the same way. We're of all the same status. All right? There's no, there's no greater Christian because they are, for example, Jewish. There's no greater Christian, to get to his argument, because they obey the law. All right? That's, that's why this needs to be in here, all right? from an argument standpoint. You're not a better Christian because you refuse to eat pork. All right? False. Not true. All right? You're all Christians because you had faith in Jesus. So therefore, Jew and Gentile are the same. The law for this is irrelevant. Why? Because it came after the promise. All right? It came after the promise. Therefore, you can't apply the law to an agreement that was made 430 years earlier. Right? So that's, that is the logical argument. Questions about that? Uh, yeah. Not really a question, but just it, I understand his logic, but you could make the same argument about the new covenant. Mm-hmm. If, if they don't say explicitly, then the old one's over. Right? Mm-hmm. Is the new one going to replace one that's been previously ratified to the old covenant? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Well, how can that be? It was before the new one. So, actually, we, we wouldn't. We actually, we would not argue that theologically. We would not say the new covenant replaces the Abrahamic covenant. Theologically, the new covenant, all right, replaces, if anything, the Mosaic covenant, all right. And so, Abraham's covenant is still intact, all right. It it never it will never end. As a matter of fact, there will be no end to the Abrahamic covenant. And so, you know, they, so Paul doesn't argue that. That's actually that would be that would defeat his argument. Would be to say that the Abrahamic covenant came to an end. What does fit his argument? All right, would be, all right. Well, the Mosaic covenant is going away. God is making a new agreement, and we can think of the covenants. All right, as you've got the Abrahamic covenant, and the law was not added to change that covenant. It did not change that covenant at all. It's always been by faith. It was something added to the people in Paul's theology to prepare them for something later. All right? Paul, Saul, the Jew, did not realize this. Saul, the Jew, thought it was, this is it. This is what we need to get everybody doing. All right? Paul, the Christian, realized, wait a minute, it doesn't work that way because theologically, God made the promise to Abraham, point one, and, and point Two, Jesus, whom those who obeyed the law killed, basically said, you need to stop persecuting me. And then three, that same Jesus started bringing Gentiles into the covenant without the law. Therefore, Paul has to figure out how that fits. And Paul's explanation is, and we're not done with that explanation. Paul's explanation of that is, it was temporary. The point of the law was to be a teacher. Now, what happens when you're old enough and you don't need a teacher? You get rid of the teacher. All right? So what's the purpose of the law? It was to teach them that they actually have to live by faith. Right? That's Paul's, Paul's argument. They have to live by faith because they will not succeed living by the law. And so it was, I don't know if you call it, surprisingly, might be the right way to say um, it was surprisingly there not to actually bring about righteousness. That would have been Saul the Jew. 
All right? The law is here to bring about righteousness. Paul the Christian says, the law cannot bring about righteousness. That you can't. That you're yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to show you there's a problem. And so, Abrahamic covenant never gets set aside for all eternity. Mosaic covenant did. The new covenant given will also never be set aside. All right? It is also permanent. The, the, Paul, yeah. or the writer to the Hebrews argues that the new replaces the old. Yeah. And, it's a, and the old being. Right, Mosaic Covenant. Yeah. Anything else? Any other notes? Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, and this is our point, second, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. All right? But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, and this would be Jews and Gentiles, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right? And so, what was the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant? It was to be a teacher for a time. And when that's over, you don't need the teacher anymore. All right? Now, it doesn't specifically here talk about the New Covenant, but the New Covenant is... In, is very analogous to the Mosaic Covenant. Why was a New Covenant needed? All right. Well, New Covenant was needed because, well, one of the problems with the people was that they were faithless. All right. They did not have the power to obey. That's one thing. The New Covenant, which is based on the Abrahamic Covenant, so it does not change it. It adds. It's another covenant on top of it. All right, the old never changed. The, the old Mosaic covenant, excuse me, the old Abrahamic covenant. All right, the new covenant is given. Why? Because the new covenant promises the Spirit. All right, the new covenant fixes the deficiency of the Mosaic covenant. Right, and this is this is this is Jeremiah. This is Ezekiel. All right, of I will write the law in their hearts so that they will essentially be obedient. And so this new covenant is given. All right to help enact the righteousness that God expects from his people. Sort of like the Davidic covenant. Does the Davidic covenant replace the Abrahamic covenant? No. Did it replace the Mosaic covenant? No, it was another covenant. Specifically to David, all right, and to his offspring. So you have multiple covenants going on, all right? Some of them permanent, some of them temporary, okay? Uh, Mosaic covenant, temporary. Davidic covenant, permanent, Right? Because ultimately there will be a descendant of David on the throne forever. Christ himself. Now, back to this phrase, number three. It's a very interesting one. And this is uh, where we will need to end today, I think. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This same phrase is used in Colossians. And is there used to talk about submitting yourselves to feast days and 
moon phases and all this kind of stuff. You also have that as well here in, in Galatians. As a matter of fact, let's actually read the next paragraph. Formerly, when you did not know God, all right, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I've been studying um, ancient and Hellenistic astronomy for a while now. For, I don't know, a couple years. It's interesting how central the moon, watching the moon and the planets and the sun and the zodiac uh, was to the Hellenistic world. All right? It was it's crazy how fascinated they were. Right Now, we are fascinated with our own, actually, not our own, more arbitrary symbols of time. You know, New Year's Day. It's silliness like that, right? Uh, for them, they were like, how do we keep time? Well, We'll keep time of this stuff up here, right? Well, the moon's really convenient. Let's use that, which is why most ancient you know, civilizations use the moon as their, as their calendar piece, which is a problem because it doesn't quite work out well. But anyway, so they were very fascinated by those kinds of things. And so the Jews were, and the Gentiles were super interested, all right, for different reasons and in different ways, were super interested in days and months and festivals all right. The Jews very much because, well, it's a part of the law. For the Gentiles, it's very much like that thing's a god, right? And so they would submit to worship them, right? Why would they be God? Well, they, they move around and they're eternal, right? They never change generation to generation and they move up in the sky. Well, that's the heavens. Those things are gods, those things are angels. And so when Paul here, is talking about these elementary elementary principles and elementary things. All right, he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. All right, we don't need to do that anymore. All right, a you're not under the law, and b you Gentiles who are worshiping that moon. All right, that that comes around every thirty-ish days. Not a god. All right, you were enslaved by things that are by nature not gods. All right. Oh, Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. All right. Well, what are those? Well, those you know Roman god names. All right. Not really gods. You were enslaved to them. You're no longer enslaved to them. All right. And so he's really hitting both of them here, though maybe a little bit more um, hitting hitting the Gentiles here. I will do do notice this. Go to Deuteronomy real quick. All right. Deuteronomy chapter four. Uh, we you know, we we pointed out this this a little bit before. It's very much worth noting again because I, I think it definitely helps us understand exactly how God had chosen to work for a while, and it helps inform us here. All right, uh, God chose Abraham and his family right uh, from among the people. He said, "Through you, I will." bless all of the nations, alright? What was God's plan for the rest of the nations during this time? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 4, start in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully 
Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. All right? I mean, that makes sense. God spoke to you and without being in a visible manifestation. Therefore, it doesn't, it, it makes no sense to make a cow and say that this is God. All right? Doesn't make sense. And beware. And here, here's the Gentile problem. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So for Paul, all right, who would have been very interested in Deuteronomy, being a Pharisee, all right, for Paul, what's the idea? Or Saul the Jew, all right? The Gentiles are out there worshiping these other gods. They're worshiping sun and moon and stars and stuff. And all of that's false, all right? God has allotted that to the Gentiles. God chose the Jews as his people, all right? It's not appropriate for us to worship moon and stars and such, all right? That's what God allotted to them. Paul the Apostle, it's different. He's like, okay, now... God is calling you away from what you are allotted to. It is time for you to stop worshiping the sun and the moons and the host of heaven, the principles of the earth, the elementary things, all right? Stop worshiping that stuff. You're now to worship the God of Israel just like the Jews, right? Just like Abraham did, right? So that's his theology. That's that's in the background there. All right, and I think that helps. I think that's essentially why, when he talks about the elements of the world, he talks about sun and moon and all of that. It's it's what God had set up for the Gentiles, but these Galatians, these Gentiles, not anymore. God, you switch families, right? You switched into this other thing, inappropriate, for you to now worship the stars, and the sun and the moon. It's absurd. Worship the true and living God. So, that's about it for today. We do have a few minutes for questions or thoughts if anybody has them that they want to share. Okay? We are not yet done with Genesis in the book of Galatians. We have a little bit more. So, Lord willing, we will continue on that soon.